they, they found out back in April that both the Kerno cr crowd and the Whitfield crowd were going to be gone this week. Would they do this? And they all panicked and said no. And uh, then they changed their mind and decided they would. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a little scary up here on stage at times, so uh, to, to get up and do that, uh, you appreciate it more than you know, because if they hadn't have done it, I guess it would have been me, you know, and uh, so uh, I, I'm grateful that they, they chose to do that, and uh, you are more than you realize. If, if I told you I was born and raised in South Carolina, what would that tell you about me? Well, immediately it tells you that uh, I use the appropriate amount of syllables in words so that you understand what they mean. It tells you that I like uh, barbecue and beer and fried chicken and believe they are God-ordained substances for us to enjoy. It tells you that if you're talking about uh, calics or doohickeys, uh, whatchamacallits, or if you say, gone down the country, give me down the country, or great Dow, or, or slap your grandma, I know just what you're talking about, and there's no problem. I mean, you learn all of that because you know where I was born, where I was raised. What if you do the same thing with God? God was never born and never raised. What does that tell you about God? Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. I want us to think this morning about a subject that many times is completely ignored, and that is the self-sufficiency of God. Colossians 1, verse 17 says, He is before all things, and in Him all things Hold together. Think about that for a minute. God is speaking here specifically of Christ is before anything existed. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. Put that into something very simple like plumbing. How many of you like doing plumbing? I, not very many. There are a few of you. Okay. I hate doing plumbing. I don't know who designed plumbing you know the way it all works because I go to fix a leaky pipe and it leaks more after I'm done than before it did before I got in there you know it's like it would be great if I knew who designed this you know who, who likes to read directions I, I think my problem is I hate reading directions if you pick up a set of directions nowadays they're just terrible. The first two pages are telling you all this safety equipment you need. And then the next two pages are telling you how they're not going to steal your privacy. And then you get to the about six pages in and it's four different languages and you don't know which one's yours. Oh, that's foreign language. I got to get to another page. You know, it just goes on and on and on. I hate all of that. I want something simple that says, big pipe goes with this pipe, this is how. Boom. You know? Well, since I don't read directions... I put the pipes together, and nowadays the pipes are supposed to be, I think, somebody's told me this, just hand-tightened. Well, why would you want to hand-tighten it when you got this big old bad wrench? You know, let's crank this thing down and get it really tight. That's what I want to do. And, you know, 
instead of hand tightening. And what does hand tighten mean? When you're as strong as I am, you know, that's like a wrench for most people. And if, if, if you tighten it now too much, instead of sealing it, you're breaking the seal. And so it's, it's not tight, it's leaking. That's what I mean. It would be good to know who designed all this. Who was in the design phase? How is it supposed to work? How does it really hold together? And that's what Colossians 1 is telling us about God. God was in the design phase. He was before all things. He knows exactly how it works. And matter of fact, he is the one who holds all things together. Knowing that would be important, don't you think? Wouldn't that change a lot of how we do life? If we knew who designed it, how it was designed, how it's supposed to work and hold together. I want us to think about God's existence before it all. Let's start, stop and think about the existence of life itself. Look at John chapter 5, verse 26. John chapter 5, verse 26. Tell you what, I'll, I'll read 25 and 26 because the last part of verse 25 is important here. 25, Jesus speaking says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Now stop and think about that phrase. God the Father, God the Son have life in in self in themselves why would he tell us that because of that previous verse he says there's a time coming when you will and he says it's now he says you hear the voice of the son of god and just hearing his voice you will live and it's all because he's got life in himself let's suppose you're driving your car and you're crossing double bridges out there on Lake Hartwell. And the car in front of you, for some reason, veers off, goes over the bridge and into the water. Now it's your job to rescue those people. You see the car go under. You see the bubbles come up. You pull off the side of the road and, and, and you look hoping these people are going to swim out. But you see nobody swimming up. Okay. You jump in, and you go down to rescue them. As you look, you finally find the car. As you find the car, you realize you're out of air. So you've got to go back to the top to get more air, or you'll die. So you come back to the top, you get more air, you go back down, you find the car again, you're closer to it, you try to find a rock or something, you can't open the door because of the water pressure, you find a rock, try to break the, the glass, but then you're out of air, so you've got to go to top again. I don't know how deep it is there. And then you swim back down. You try it again the third time. And about the time you find the car and to find the rock again, you're out of breath again. And you've got to go back. Wouldn't it be nice if you had somehow, you had breath in yourself? If you had life within yourself, you would never have to go back up for more air. You could stay down as long as you wanted. 
You could get whatever you wanted. You, once you busted the glass, if they needed air, you could give them air because you have air within yourself. Think about what God's saying here in John 5. He said, I have life in myself. I never have to regenerate, rejuvenate. I never have to go someplace for more of what I am or who I am. I always have all of life in myself. So that anyone comes to me, if anyone just catches a breath of God, they will live because this is eternal breath. It's eternal life. And I have it in me. I never have to go for it. It's there eternally, which is why God can never die. Because he's, we call it, he's, he exists in himself. The seminarians call this, take a class in seminary, they call it aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity is a Latin term. A lot of your dictionaries won't even have the term. Why do we not have that term much? And the reason we don't have that term is because it's not relevant to anybody but God. There's no other being that has life in himself. We've never seen it, never known about it. We're so preoccupied with our own limited existence that we rarely wake up thinking about his self-existence. That he was before all things, he holds all things together, and all life is in him self, aseity, a property by which a being exists in and of itself. That's a simple way as you can say. He self-exists. He is absolutely, totally autonomous, self-existing in his being. And not only is God self-existing in his being, he communicates that to all other attributes of himself. We call this one of God's incommunicable attributes. Another big word. Let me explain it to you real quick. Got two words you can you know, share at the bus stop. Hey, you ever heard about a saiety? You know, that'd be a good one. Here's another one. Incommunicable attribute. What is That's the easy. Incommunicable which means it's not communicated to you and me. There are things about God's nature that he does not communicate to us. Those are his incommunicable attributes. And then he's got this whole host of attributes that he does give to us. Those are the communicable attributes. But incommunicable, one of those is aseity, his self-existence. No one else ever gets self-existence. It's only God who is self-existing. But as a self-existing being... The one and only self-existing being. He communicates that to every other part of his being. In other words, he is self-existing in his being, in his wisdom, in his power, in his holiness, in his justice, in his goodness, in his compassion, in his truth. Everything about God is self-existing. It exists within him perpetually. It never dies or goes out. In any way. And that's extremely practical and important for us to think through. Let me, let me give you some examples so you don't just have to trust me. Let's look at Romans 11, 33 through 34. God declaring his mind to us. 
Romans 11, 33 and 34. And see this in the context of his self-existing nature. Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who became his counselor? Stop there and think about what he's saying. So you stop and think about God's intellectual abilities, God's mind. Have you ever contemplated that? Do you know the mind of the Lord? You say, do you ever say, God, what are your thoughts? Do you know the thoughts of God? And it's given us this prelude into this. Think about the depths, the riches of his thoughts, of his knowledge. And you'll get to a place where you realize it's unsearchable and it's unfathomable. Why? Because it's self-existing. Because that's his nature. He has endless thoughts. He has endless knowledge. He never has to go to school. He never has to have a counselor. He never needs instructions. He never has to read the directions. I like that. He never has to phone a friend. He has infinite wisdom and ability to think through whatever needs to be thought through. That's God's self-existing mind. Well, look at some other attributes. Look at his will. Look at Ephesians 1, verse 11. Ephesians 1, verse 11. It says, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Let's think about that last phrase. You think you get hung up on predestination. That's a big word. But he does all things after the counsel of his will. In other words, who does he consult when something needs to be done? He consults himself. He does all action. All action happens as a result of God consulting with God. His will is self-existing. It's in himself that he has all knowledge and wisdom and ability to do whatever he does. Think about his love. Look at Jeremiah 33, excuse me, 31, verse 3. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. We sometimes quote this verse Share this verse. It's, it's, it's a wonderful little uh, phrase about God's love, but it, it packs so much more punch and understanding when you, when you take it in the context of God's aseity, his self-existence. Jeremiah 31, verse 3, says, The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. That's not just poetic license or phrase theology. It's, this, this is reality. If he loves you with an everlasting love, that means he loves you from eternity. That means before all things were, before the foundation of the world. It means God's love is eternal. It's infinite. It's 
it's, it's all surpassing. And he says, and I love you with that kind of love. This love that's always existing before anything else was existing. This love was existing because this love was in me. And that's the love I have for you. Wow. That's a big love. That's the love we don't comprehend and understand to think through. This is because God is self-existing, that he has a love that far supersedes any we've ever known. Well, think also not only of his love. And when I think about love, it's like, do you, I need motivation sometimes to love. I need a push sometimes to love. I need encouragement. Somebody say, you need, my wife will tell me, you need to call so-and-so. You need to visit so-and-so. You need to, to talk to somebody. Like, yeah, you're right. Don't you need that? You need some push. You need initiation. You need motivation. You need encouragement. God doesn't need any of that. God loves us without motivation, without initiation, without encouragement. His love is everlasting. It's there for us. Always there. Never needing to be more. It's never less. Look at his power. Psalm 115. Verse 3, again, think of God's power, one of those communicable attributes connected to his incommunicable, his aseity. Psalm 115. Verse 3, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Wow, that's power. How could you possibly, God, do whatever you please. Well, it's because of his society. He can do whatever he pleases. He never fears opposition. He never fears death. He can't go out of existence. He is self-existing. There is no one who can put him down. There is no one who can destroy him. He has no opposition whatsoever. He can do whatever he pleases. No one can thwart his power, his ability, his stability because of his aseity. So again, think of the greatness. When you, when you think about self-existence, God's aseity, you begin to see how much greater and more necessary is God and how badly we need him because he's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Self-existing makes additions to God meaningless. So wrestle with that with me for a while. Even thinking about what we bring to God in prayer, in praise, in uh, worship. God's self-existence means he's never in need. And none of this brings him something that is going to be of advantage to him. Um, even, even the salvation of the church, it's so gracious, it's so glorious, it's so awesome when you think about God so loving the world that he gave his only begotten son, that he sent his son into the world to save, to redeem sinners, and to make sinners into the church, and to build the church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. As glorious as all that is, it adds nothing to God. 
He already has everything that he needs. He chooses to do this, and it's a glorious work that he chooses to do, but it does not bring him nothing. God needs nothing for meaning. God needs nothing for glory. You know, I feel like there's times I have to do something, and people say, oh, good job, that, that was glorious. You know, it, it's, it's my activity that adds meaning. God has to, doesn't need to do anything to add meaning, to add glory to who he is. Because he's glorious in and of himself. Self-existing in glory. Um, all that we bring him, we bring because we're, as, as Dale said, we should bring it out of gratitude. If he chooses to hear our prayers, if he chooses to receive our tithes, if he chooses to delight in us, that's glorious for us. Because he doesn't need any of it. And the fact that he would ask or want, that's good news for us. Um, uh, it's, it, it just assures us of so much. Let's, let's, let's think about um, uh, this from Acts 4, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 40. Just This passage blows me away of the bigness of God. Look at Isaiah 40. As you think about what does God need? Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who? Great question. Put on your thinking caps. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now, the word waters, you probably have a marginal note. The little Hebrew means the, the waters of the seas. So we're not just talking about a little water. Who has measured the seas, the oceans, in the hollow of his hand. And we're not just talking about the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean or the Indian Ocean. Or we got to visit the Japan Sea and the China Sea. I mean, you start adding all the waters on planet Earth. And then you get this picture in the hollow of his hands. Have you ever imagined God being able to just go... Hmm, that's about how much it is. He can put all of the waters in the palm of his hand and tell you the quantity. How big a hand is that? And then it goes on, you think that's something. And mark off the heavens by the span. Mark off the heavens. And Who can measure the heavens? And it gives us... The, the imagery here that God can, can say, well, it's from here to here. So he can see the span, the distance of the heavens standing where he is from one end to the other. And he can say, yeah, that's how far it is. I don't know if he can reach that far, if he can just see that far. You know, I can see a few miles on a clear day. But God can see from one end of the heavens to the others. Wow. Who, who can do that? And it goes on, and he says, and calculate the dust of the earth by measure. Can you, can you calculate the dust? I mean, you've got household scales, right? So you can stand on the scales in the morning and see how you did. You know, in the night, you, you, 
I don't know why you're supposed to lose weight at night, but sometimes you're supposed to. But anyway, you get on the scales. Do any of you kind of dust them off first? Because that dust, you know, it weighs a lot. It says God can calculate the dust of the earth by measure. He can actually measure dust and tell you how much dust weighs if you take all of the dust on the earth at the same time. Who can do that? You begin to get this picture of a God that's so much bigger and immeasurable than you, you and me have ever thought about. And he just keeps going on and on and weighed the mountains in a balance. And the hills in a pair of scales, I don't even sometimes know the difference between a mountain and a hill. And yet he can, he can separate them and, and weigh them out. Verse 13, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or who, as his counselor, has informed him? There's no, the answer is no one, no one, no one, no one, no one, no one. Only God is self-existing and can do any of this. Verse 14, with whom did he consult? Who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge? And who informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon, which is rich, glorious place at that time, says, you want to pick something like that. Even Lebanon's not enough to burn, nor it's beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Wow. Take all the nations. Take the United States of America as a nation. I don't know how many millions of people we are. Add to that China. How many billions of people they are. Add all the nations together. And say, all of the nations bring God an offering together. We, we join forces. Let's be honorable and worship our God. He says, if you were to do that, all of you together would be maybe a drop from a bucket. You would give me nothing. You would add to me nothing. No matter what you came up with to do no matter how many billions of people you got to do it with you cannot add to the existence of God so I, I exist in and of myself and I'm in need of nothing of any size of any value of any weight that's the self-existence of our God the greatness of of our God uh, for us. Uh, unbelievable. Uh, look, at, look at John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus' prayer. John 17, verse 5. Some people say, no, 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 God needs us. God was lonely when he created everything, and so he needs us. He created us for companionship. Well, not according to what we just read and not according to this. John 17, verse 5 says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You catch that? 
I want you to glorify me, Father, for my sacrifice, laying down my life for the church. I want you to glorify me with the glory that you glorified me with when there wasn't a world. In other words, I want you to do that special thing you do when no one else is around. When was that? Before anyone existed. God the Father and God the Son had fun. They glorified one another. They encouraged one another. They have companionship with one another. They didn't need us. They don't need us now. They self-exist with glory, power, praise, majesty, all that they need. Uh, look at Acts 17, 23 through 28. Here, the Apostle Paul is trying to explain this to um, non-Christians. He, he, he came into a city, and he noticed they were having these religious services, but none of them were worshiping the true God. And so he says, I, I noticed as I came into your city, you have this um, monument, and there's an inscription on it that says, To the unknown God. So obviously, you've got some sense of understanding that there is a God out there, but you don't know what to call him. Paul says, let me help you out with that. Verse 23 of Acts 17 says, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I've come to proclaim. Verse 24, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed time and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist." What's Paul saying is, you need to know this God. And he's not far from you because he holds all things together. You wouldn't be existing if he weren't here. We live and move and breathe and exist because of him. Now, he, don't get me wrong. He's not like all these other gods you're serving. You think you're adding to God by doing what you do? You think you're, you're pleasing him by doing what you do? He's, he doesn't need any service. He doesn't need you to add to him. He doesn't need you to give him anything. He has everything he possibly can need. But he's still your God. He's still the one in charge. He's still over everything. And without him, you don't live, I don't live. He says it's crucial that we know this God. But this God doesn't need a support system. He is self-existing. He doesn't create us for his support, for building him up. Um, look at Romans 11. Think about God's energy. Romans 11, 33 through 36. Romans 11, 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of his wisdom and knowledge of God, the unsearchable. I read part of this before. Um, 
For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Everything comes from him. Everything goes back to him. Everything goes through him. And he's, he's never without. He never is lacking in uh, energy for himself. He has everything that he can possibly need. Needs no more. One more passage. I know I've given you a lot. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. Speaking of God says, And he alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God has immortality. See, he can't die because he's, his nature is to be self-existing. So he's immortal. He's eternal. He's, he's in a, unapproachable. No one's like this. He, he dwells in unapproachable light. No one has seen God at any time. The people who, who seek to, to image him in some way or fashion, they've never seen God. They've just given you their imagination. And they've probably not truly imagined his unapproachable light and his self-existence and what that means. What does it mean to, to dwell in immortality and to bring immortality to light? What does that mean to, to have that nature and that ability to have eternal dominion, power, and control over everything? Who is like this? There is no one more majestic in their majesty. No one more excelling in excellence. No one more peerless in perfections no one more holy no one more glorious and he's all of this perpetually never needing to be generated never needing regeneration never needing rejuvenation he's this all the time totally completely without diminishing in any way that's God for us Knowing that, he's before all things and holds all things together. I think that's extremely important. Now, some people say that's just illogical and I won't believe it. And the reason they say that is because they, they, they follow logic thinking to be self-existing means to be self-caused. God never says he's self-caused. Now, I understand the illogic of being self-caused. If I'm a person who causes myself, then I had to be a person before I was a person, to cause myself, right? See, you can't do that. It's illogical. But God doesn't say he does that. God never claims to be the one who caused himself. God claims to be uncaused and self-existing. Now, whether we can understand that or not doesn't matter. It doesn't make it any less true. That's who God is. He's without cause. He was before all things. And he holds all things together. So application. What can we do with it? 
Number one, I think we could, we could spend the afternoon thinking about the applications of this, but number one, it should create for us better worship. Just having a better understanding of who this is, we come to praise and adore and give ourselves to. Understanding how great he is, um, understanding uh, his incomparable nature. So many times we want to compare God to our friend or to some statesman or to someone great or some nation or some characteristic. God's incomparable. And we need to understand that as we, as we come to him. The scripture says he alone dwells in inapproachable light. Alone. There's no one else there. The scripture says, Revelation 15, 4, he alone is holy. There's no one else there. Just God. He is alone in his self-existence. And he's self-existing alone as one who's self-existing in wisdom, in power, in holiness, in justice, in goodness, in compassion, in mercy, in truth. That's our God. All life is in himself you know um, sometimes we don't see that about God but God is never old he's never new he's always to think that through he's always the same yesterday today and forever he doesn't get older he doesn't get more new he can't be greater than who he is he self-exists in completeness, in perfection, all of these things are His. We need to worship. We need to see our problem is not... Uh, when we have weak, weak worship, our problem is not whatever. Our problem usually is our weak view of God. A bigger view of God creates a bigger, better worship in your heart and in mine. Um, we can improve our worship by spending time thinking about a God who needs nothing but delights and inhabits the praise of his people. Let's come and adore him. Let's come and worship him. Let's praise him. He alone deserves all praise and adoration and worship. Second, it should change our prayer, our assurance. We limit our prayers sometimes. We limit our understanding of, does God really care for me? Our assurance of God's care for me. And we should not limit our prayers, and we should not be limited in our understanding of, of God's care for us, insurance, because God's self-existing. The fact that he's self-existing means God is never spending his time taking care of himself. God's never sick. God's never injured. God, he, you know, We read scriptures like, God says, I'm never hungry. I mean, which one of you is going to go kill a cow and feed me? He says, would I need that? See, he doesn't have to spend any of his time on himself. The fact that he doesn't have to spend him time on himself because he's self-existing means he has all the time in the world for you. And for me, he's, he can never be too preoccupied. He can never be unresourced. So why would we not pray? Why would we not be fully assured God has everything 
I need. And God can supply anything for my situation because His resources are never depleted. He always has all mercy, all compassion. The span of the heavens, the span of the earth, all of it, he says, is mine. I alone have eternal, immortal dominion over it all. Pray to me, ask, and see if I will not give you what you need. To, to change the way we pray, to change our sense of assurance. Does God really care? Is God listening? Is God paying attention? Well, God has no ability to be distracted. Nothing's going to say, well, I, you know, you can call me up and say, David, I need you right now. And I'm going to say, I don't have the resources right now. I'm tired, I'm worn out, I'm sick, I'm down in the back, I'm hurt, I'm in the hospital. So many things, I can't do this for you. God has none of it. God is never in a place where he's distracted or unresourced for his people because of his aseity. should change, you know, have you ever been, you know what I'm talking about, have you ever been to the store and you ran out of resources? I mean, you want stuff, but you don't have the resources for stuff. And sometimes because you don't have the resources for stuff, you buy it on credit. Which means it's not really yours, but you've now got it. And God never, God never buys anything on credit. God never depletes his resources. His resources never run out. He always has whatever we need. So pray to Him, receive Him, trust Him, be assured of His love for His creation. It should change our prayers, it should change our worship. Three, it should change our dependence on God. We are dependent creatures. He is independent and self-existing. He is dependent on none of us for nothing. We're dependent upon Him for everything. We, we sometimes pride ourselves in our self-sufficiency. We're not self-sufficient. Some of you are more sufficient than others. I mean, some of you have solar power and generators, and I just, I love that stuff. I love being off the grid. I love being self-sufficient, but I'm not. I never will be. I will always be dependent upon God. I am a de dependent creature. The only way I can get self-sufficient is Christ in me. Christ alone is self-sufficient. We need to remember our dependency upon him. Uh, I love uh, Paul's verse here. You've, you've heard it, Galatians 2.20. Paul, Paul talks about it. He says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. You know that's the verse I'm reading. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Think about it. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Well, you say, well, Paul, you, you are living. I'm talking to you. And he says, no, no, no. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He says, I now live in total dependence upon Christ. He says, that changes everything. The life I now live, I trust Christ for. 
and it's Christ who lives in me. He says, catch this, if Christ lives in me, then death's off the table. But Christ, because Christ is eternal. Christ is immortal. Christ is self-existing, and he is in me now. And so the fact that Christ is in me means that resurrection is uncertainty. I I don't die. I'm raised in him. He says, so that's where I put my faith. That's where I put my trust. I am totally dependent upon that. It changes everything. Christ in me. Trust him. Ask him in. Receive him. Christ in you changes everything everything being a dependent creature changes everything sometimes we're like we're like that uh, rich man in Luke 12 who who's built all these barns and stored up stuff he says I now have enough for a long time I can eat drink and be merry and many people are working for that day where they can sit back and say I've got enough I can eat drink and be merry not knowing that even today your soul may be required of you. And that will never get you to where you want to be. Where you want to be is self-existence, and that's not possible. Where we are is dependence upon God, who is self-existent. And just receiving Him and trusting Him and living, having, living, living a life where He is in us gets us where we need to be. Regardless of our resources, His resources are unlimited. They're eternal. They're immortal. Paul says, that's where I want to be. I want, I want to live a life trusting Christ in me the self-existent one that changes everything so number four gratitude for our redemption if, if you've received Christ it changes our lifestyle we're not those who complain why do people complain anyway we complain because we don't think anybody's listening we somebody needs to hear what we got to say God never needs to hear what we've got to say not to get something done God already knows everything. He said, I delight in your prayers, but I want you to pray with thanksgiving. There should be gratitude. Why? Because I'm the one who's given you everything, and I got nothing for it. God is the one who gives to all and is enriched by none. And when we realize that, we come into every day, our lives, with much more gratitude. God has received nothing from me that he didn't already own, possess, and could take it at any moment. How grateful we should be that he has designed before the foundation of the world that we should be his. Receive him. And then the fifth thing I put down uh, here is an explanation of salvation participants. Why are some people saved and some people not? It comes back to understanding the nature of God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. It says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Who penetrates us? Who changes us? Who makes us saved? Who makes us embraced by God? He says God is the one. God's the only one who can penetrate our darkness, our world, with his 
in an unapproachable light. God is the one who does it. It's not our amount of time in church. It's not our gifts. It's not our walking an aisle. It's not us catching the bus. It's not nothing. It's God. God doesn't tell you that he's waiting on you. God says you need to be waiting on God. Those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. Yes, come. If you have a hunger and thirst, God's doing something in your life, come and receive him. But our need is for God to come to us. Eternity, heaven cannot come to us unless God brings it. We can't go to it. We can't approach it. So our need is to constantly be saying, God, let me receive you. I am in desperate place. I am, I am a person that does not self-exist. I will not exist. I will die. I will get old. I will deteriorate. You will have none of that. I need what you've got. I need life, and I need it more abundant, and I need it eternal, and I need it fixed in the heavens. And only God can give that. So our need is to ask of God, and he who has can give generously. Because it never hurts his resources to do so. You've got a loved one in your home. You've got a friend, a neighbor. Great discussion. Have you thought about the aseity of God lately? If God self-exists, that changes everything. That means you and I must run to him for our existence. It means in him we live, we move, and we have our being. Which means without God, not only do we lose air, not only do we lose our being, we, we completely lose existence. We just disappear. God is before all things and holds all things together. We must trust and depend on Him alone. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your glory. Lord, we long to know it more deeply. Who has known the depths and the breadth and the riches, the unfathomable riches of God in His glory? Father, let us know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. For in this is life and life eternal. For those, Lord, who have been living on borrowed time with borrowed resources, thinking they were well off. May even this hour, this day, they run to you for life and life eternal. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.